Hello and welcome back to Second World Problems, a world building podcast. Uh, I am Morgan or this week uh, I am someone who will fong you until your insides become your outsides, your entrails will become your extrails. A lot of pain. I'm what? Amazing. I'm Finn, the host of this podcast, and this week I am Edward of Woodstock, the Black Prince of Wales. Ooh, hell badass. yeah! Small also part, royalty. But, yeah, big part, big small part, but big part. He has uh, Deus, just, Deus Ex Machina, really. Yeah, an integral character, and just you know, I I love the actor who plays him. He's just he's got that look, you know, yeah. that sort of look where you're like, yeah, Have you, you would be. A good Edward. Have you watched The Following? He's also in The Following. He's like a cult, serial cult killer cult leader. I'm thing. also not surprised by that. <laughs> I mainly remember him from like George and the Dragon. Yeah, he's, he's also George. in that. He's, yeah, he's, he's very captivating, his performance. Anyway, yeah. uh, it, uh, we haven't said what we're talking about, but I ho- I think people probably could I think guessed. people got it. We're do- this week we're doing A Knight's Tale. Yeah, yeah, I love A Knight's Tale. Yeah, we're a little bit out of sync than normal because we are once again recording from remote places. Yeah... Good on you, Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did we did so good at making sure we can never leave our houses again. Yeah. But anyway, hopefully this will distract some people from, you know, the lockdown we're currently yeah. in. Let's leave Melbourne and head back to way, way back. Yeah, way, way back times when 18? place for worse. I don't even know the years. I couldn't tell you. Uh, probably 14th century. 14th century. I would say. I mean, I think. But I've probably written it down somewhere. So let's go on to the actual podcast so that way we can find out whether or not I'm right. Okay. So this week we're doing A Knight's Tale. Um, just a little bit of background. A Knight's Tale is loosely inspired by Chaucer's The Knight's Tale, hence why Chaucer is a character in the movie. Um, I'm sure everyone's seen the movie. If you haven't, what are you doing? Why? And why do you exist? Mm. So in the stories, in Chaucer's... In the DVD version of A Knight's Tale, in the special features, you know, back when we actually watched those and things like that. So, like, in one of those featurettes on the DVD, the director, Brian, um, explains, like, his inspiration for A Knight's Tale. And it it basically boils down to he read a biography of Chaucer and there's, like, a six-month period where no one knows what he was doing. All the historians are like, I don't know, he's just not there. Um, So part of... The point of the movie is like this is what happens during that six months where he was missing Um, and then it also incorporates like the first of his Canterbury Tales which is the Knight's Tale and then that so it's sort of like he's writing about the characters in this movie as inspiration for the Knight's Tale. Yeah. Obviously that's all that's all made (laughs) up that's not really what he was doing but it's a good idea. It's It's interesting. Because I read that when I was researching this as well I was just like doing cut light research, nothing too heavy, but like I, I basically, yeah, Brian, I read Brian Hegelin's response on that. I, I actually read a lot of what he said about this movie, and a lot of it is I'm like, oh, this is yeah. He has like yeah. what he 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 knew exactly wanted to, wanted to make all the decisions he made. He made for a reason, yeah. And like every time he explains it, I'm like, yeah, that I understand. That's a great choice, and like I've never heard of him before, but he did great. It's <laughs> a great movie too. Yeah. Like it's a really it's a really enjoyable, really good movie. And like a lot of historians agree about that. Like we're gonna talk about a bit more about that, but historians really like a knight's tale. Yeah. So in terms of like its invention, I've put it as medium because although this story is set in our world in the past, it does use a lot of anachronistic elements, not only to make the film more enjoyable, 
but to capture the feeling and spectacle of things that did happen in that time in a way that speaks to modern audiences or contemporary audiences. Audiences. So, like, while it's not historically accurate in it, in like the substance, like in, you know, in costuming, in like actual detail, but the way it presents like chivalric glory and romance that the people of the time associated with the joust and like knighthood, that's accurate. And it's communicated to the audience through, you know, just all its anachronistic elements. But the main one I think of is the incredible use of the boys are back in town <laughs> when they're riding into um, England for the joust. And it's and like it's all the crowds and they're cheering and they've got their um like uh William's team are walking in front of him with his heraldry like people have got face paint on of their favorite knights coat of arms, um so I just think that um it ex- well it explores medieval themes that very accurately using anachronism to entertain a contemporary I audience. Mean, while we're on it, the soundtrack is banging. Like there's it's so many soundtrack. good tracks on there. And that was another thing I read. Like Brian was saying, like the songs are more modern but they elicit the same response and like people yes. understand like that's how they would have felt at the time. And I'm like, it's genius. He's a genius. Yeah. So yeah it's about, <laughs> yeah, it's about recreating the feeling, the spirit of it, as opposed to the actual historical content, um, which is, I suppose like, it's a really good way of doing that because it communicates the same thing to the audience, but it doesn't have to be, you're not constrained by being completely historically accurate, which is what good historical fiction does. Um, so in terms of its completeness, completeness uh there's a lot to jump off of in the movie that relates back to actual history but since it isn't super accurate or even potentially explored in the actual world of the text itself i would say it doesn't offer a deeper textual richness within the world but it does in our world like if you want to come out of the out of a knight's tale and then back into normal life there are lots of places you could go based on things that are in a night's tale that might not be fully explored or accurate. So that's how I feel about that. Nice. And again, consistency, not necessarily accurate, but accurate in spirit. Like it's always consistent to the way that things would have felt for the people of the time, but it's being communicated to us in the now times. Yeah. And that's exactly what it tries to be and it kind of nails it. So yeah. It's a really good example of that because yeah. it does it so well. Okay, so now we get on to setting uh, and all our, we, our structural breakdown. We get into the nitty-gritty, and I'm really excited because this gets me, gives me a chance to talk about some stuff that we don't normally talk about because this is, you know, um, based in our actual history as opposed to the history of a world that is separated from ours. So... The setting is 14th century England and France. Aha, I was right. My brain did do the remembering thing it's supposed to do. <laughs> it's good that it still works like that. Yeah, still works. Um, so in this time, we're dealing with the reign of Edward III of England. So he reigned as king from 1327 to 1377 CE, uh, succeeding his father, Edward II. Um, following his forced abdication and then murder, Edward III would take revenge on his father's enemies, who included the young king's own mother, Isabella of France, um, and he would go on to reign for 50 years. So Edward III is one of those kings that um, a lot of other kings that followed him either traced their lineage back to or they looked up to him as, like, the ideal king. So he reunified um, the English barons who sort of got uh, divided during 
his father's reign. He extended Windsor Castle, established a new area of med- medieval chivalry, which is really important for this, the premise of this movie. And he embarked on the Hundred Years' War, of, War with France to reclaim his the French throne, which English kings have been trying to do for ages. Um, Henry V nearly succeeds, but he dies, like like I think it's like 20 days or something, prior to being able to claim the French throne. So they always try and do that, but it's it sort of starts seriously with Edward III and the Hundred Years' War. I might have accidentally done this, but uh, since we started watching Assassin's, uh, since we did the Assassin's Creed episode, I started watching Nightfall, uh, Nightfall, yep. and it's yep. kind of got some of the similar vibes here. And I'm like, I actually know a lot more about this than I thought I did. Yeah. All of a sudden, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of yeah, a lot of media actually focuses on this area, especially because yes, so Edward the. Isabella of France, who married Edward II, so mother of Edward III, was the daughter of the French king Philip the Fair. Philip the Fair is the one who demolished the Order of Templars. Yeah, so I was just looking at, because you said Princess Isabella of France in your notes, and I was like, is that? And I looked at it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's that character that I was just watching the other night um, yeah. uh, fall in love with the Spanish prince. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, I'm learning so much. Joan of Navarre is um, also in that one, I think. Queen, it's Queen Joan. Joan. Yeah, Queen Joan. She marries. Um, she marries. Ed, she marries the father of uh, Henry V. So I think it's should be Henry the Fourth. I think. Um, and so yeah, she's the mother of Henry V as well. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, there's just it's very all those. Um, it's just very interesting because everything gets sort of in, interconnected within like family lines between royalty, and, right? <laughs> so, Edward married Philippa of um, Hainault, with whom he had thirteen children in all. I think he had five sons who survived till adulthood. Um, his most favoured son was his eldest, Edward of Woodstock, also known um, since the sixth century, sixteenth century, as the Black Prince of Wales. So that's his most famous son, but he had lots of others. Um, a lot of them survived, which leads to like a lot of um, like there's a lot of weird tracing back you can do. Like the fact, like I just sent you a link to Six. Let's not talk about how legal that link was, but um, if you don't know, Six is a musical about the six wives of Henry VIII, and Morgan also runs a musical podcast, musical the Cool Musical Podcast. Yeah. So, um, Just for legal purposes, you actually sent me this uh, a link that is not a documentary on Henry's ex-wives. That's what that's the link true. is. It's, it's not, not a documentary. Docu- it's not a documentary on Henry's ex-wives. Um, <laughs> Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII's wife, is descended from John of Gaunt, who is Edward's one of Edward the Third's sons, and it's Henry VIII is also descended from Edward the Third. So they have the same English blood ancestry, which is why whenever it really annoys me whenever I watch a, like a, like a Tudor drama or anything like that. And, um, like I, and like Catherine always looks, is always dark haired and dark eyed. She was a redhead because she was descended also from John of Gaunt. So she has English blood too, which is why the Spanish princess gets it right. She's a redhead, (laughs) a redhead. So yeah, the lines are just from Edward the third, all those, all these, um, like familial lines just go fucking crazy. Which because he uh, had so many kids. Which to tease, we're not going to get into it now, but which to tease the ending makes a bit more like it's like he could have been. <laughs> Who knows? Well, also like they're very vague towards the end as to what like 
where that line comes from. We'll get into that because I um, would like to talk a bit more. It was a case of that. lines are confusing and also he does whatever the hell he wants and he did that. Yeah, it's, and also like, and also, I'm a prince. Yeah. Are you going to argue with me? <laughs> anyway, so the rules of this world, uh, basically we're going to talk about the chivalric code of honor, which I am, I'm super happy to be talking about. It's so interesting. So in medieval Europe, there was a code of ethics, which most people would know of as chivalry. Um, now it's mainly a thing for, um, you know, neckbeards on the internet to, you know, take female people down with. I was just trying to be nice. But back then it was something different. So chivalry developed, um, to include rules and expectations that the nobility, the nobility of the time would at all times acknowledge them and shape the way that they behaved in order to sort of be in line with this code of honour. So chivalry was, in addition to sort of this uh, code of ethics and behavioural management, um, it was a religious, moral and social code which helped distinguish the higher classes, so the nobility, from the commons, those below them and provided a means by which knights could earn themselves a favourable reputation so that they might progress in their careers and also their personal relations. So it, was, it wasn't just like a – it was like a guidebook for how nobility should behave, but it's also like this is what makes us different from those peasants over there. <laughs> And, yeah. It's like a different it's like a different level of this is what separates us from the animals. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, but like uh, you know, medieval nobility style because obviously they're like we're different from that and we can prove it because we obey these rules and everyone knows these rules. And it also so things like like William he obeys the chivalric code, but in society he doesn't have the lineage to support the actual the actual social mobility that he needs to become a knight. He can behave like a knight, but he can't be a knight in blood. Or so we think. <laughs> okay. So evolving from the 11th century onwards, um, essential chivalric qualities to be displayed included courage, military prowess, honour, loyalty, justice, good manners, and generosity, especially to lo- those less fortunate than oneself. It's another way, again, it's like a, I'm better than you, but look how nice I am to you because I'm so good, even though I'm better than you, that I'm going to help you out, even though I'm even though I'm so far above you. Aren't I great? Hashtag humble. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. By the 14th century, the notion of chivalry had become more romantic and idealised, especially through the use of its incorporation into song cycles and... Um, you know, and like plays and things like that. Uh, so chivalry derived from the French cheval, and which means horse, and chevalier, which means knight, was originally a purely martial code for elite cavalry units. And then later it acquired the more romantic connotations of good manners and etiquette and knighthood and being the perfect knight and things like that. I also love, like, I know a lot of words come from French, but it's always like, well, we're better than you. We're going to, this word, it's going to come from French because French is sophisticated and fancy. But it's also (laughs) like, I mean, to some extent, French was the language of the English court for once the Normans invaded. So, like, it, it makes a lot of sense that we got a lot of loan words from them. Yeah. But at the same time, like the English hated the French, <laughs> but they were like, "We'll take your words, and then we'll use them." Yeah, we'll use them and wrong. 
back at you. <laughs> it's pretty, yeah, it's a, it's a form of warfare. It's like, we're going to take their words and we're going to say it wrong. Because I'm sure the French were very annoyed at that. Yeah. It's something they would hate. Um, so chivalry had another purpose beside making people well-mannered. We've already sort of talked about this, but it's to clearly separate the nobles from the common people. And and just to demonstrate this, I've put in a quote from A Knight's Tale. This is why I had so much fun doing this, because I just, I watched it and I picked out quotes. And then I was like, this, you're here. This, you're here. <laughs> I just, I really do enjoy A Knight's Tale as a movie. It's one of our childhood jams. We've always really enjoyed it since we were kids. So to demonstrate this, um, I can't, it's what, it's what, and then there's Kate, and then there's Roland. Roland, Roland yeah, yeah. Okay. I was like, what are you trying says, to think of? Roland says this to William when he's taking Sir Ector's armor to go compete. He says, what's your name, William? I'm asking you, William Thatcher, to answer me with your name. It's not Sir William. It's not Count or Duke or Earl William. It's certainly not King William. You have to be of noble birth to compete. I hope I got the intonation right. Oh, no, but, that was good. That was very good. Um, the only thing I can test about this quote is that dukes are above earls, but I get that it doesn't sound as good when you're <laughs> listening it. Um, so that's, that's you know, you can be, well, you can act as chivalric, as, as the ideal as the ideal chivalric knight as much as he wants, but to the people who make the code, the people who ad- adhere to the code, he will never be able to reach that. It's also like, I, ne- I never really appreciate it. There's a lot about this movie I didn't appreciate as a kid. And then when I got older, and I think there was, must've been a break. And then I watched it and I went, I understand so much more. Like yeah. his his class almost follows him around because his last name is his That's job right. or his, his family. Job, yeah. It's what his family is. And it's like, oh, that like, yeah, you literally like, what's your name? William Thatcher. Oh, you're a peasant. You're a Thatcher. You're <laughs> a Thatcher son. Yeah. yeah. And like that was a that was a fairly common thing um, in the way back times is that yeah you would take your surname from your occupation, and that's how a lot of like surnames evolved in in the English tradition. So yeah, yeah his his class is part of who he is, and even though he can apprentice to a knight, he can't he can't rise above that level without intervention. Okay, so after the Norman conquest. Norman Conquest of 1066, for example, social divisions had become a little blurred. So because, you know, a whole new court basically came in and took over from the Anglo-Saxons. So chivalry became a means by which the nobility and landed aristocrats could persuade themselves that they were superior and they had a monopoly on honour and decorous behaviour. So knighthood became sort of like a, a private club, country club, for uh, for the wealthy, you know, those with family lineage, and it it allowed them to um, perform, you know, initiation ceremonies that could allow you to enter the clique, and then you could, and then from once you were inside there, once you're in the country club, you could display your perceived superiority to the masses. Oh look, I'm in the country club. <laughs> I'm a knight. Or I'm squired to this guy, and I'm going to be a knight. Um, because I come from such and such a house and such a, such a line descended from such a, such a person. It's peacocking. It's just all peacocking. Yeah, basically. Um, so Edward III was particularly noted for his support of tournaments and the calls of chivalry. So peak time for, like, when they chose this movie, they chose the peak time for it to be relevant, I suppose, because tournaments and jousts and the cult of chivalry was huge during the reign of Edward III. So it makes sense that that's the king they would choose to set this story under. 
So at one tournament, the king organized at Windsor, Car at Windsor Castle in 1344. 200 knights were invited to join a chivalric brotherhood. And then in 1348, he created the even more ex exclusive Order of the Garter, which still exists today. For 24 chosen knights plus the king and his son, the Black Prince, they all proudly wore a blue garter to show that they were part of this order. And again, all the order and all its accompanying honors, which he created then, still exist today. Uh, one of the best places, besides an actual battlefield, for a knight to show off his qualities of chivalry was the medieval tournaments, so the joust and the, the fighting arenas and things like that. So here at something like a mock cavalry battle or, again, one, the one-on-one -on -one joust, a good knight was expected to possess and display the following qualities. Martial prowess or prouesse, because it all comes from French, courtesy or courtesy, good breeding, franchise, noble manners, debonair, and generosity, largesse. So all the, it's funny, we were just like, we're going to take all those nice words and we're just going to put them in our chivalric orders. <laughs> all these things they have to demonstrate as good Englishmen, we're just going to take those from the French and show them how we do it better. Because that's what it's all about. Yeah, it's all about one-upmanship. One yeah. And you see that in the movies as well, when they bet with the French, yeah. uh, the the other French the other French guys about who would win the tournament, um, and all the French guys are like mocking them. And Roland has the iconic line: "The Pope may be French, but Jesus is English," which is not true, not but true, a great yeah. line. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now we move on to culture and inhabitants. So the main character is William Thatcher, as we've sort of said, the son of a Thatcher who dreams of becoming a knight. Changing his stars, the main theme of the movie. You can change your stars. You can't literally change stars, but I, I guess like... It's an analogy. Analogy for fate, things like that. Although I think at the end fate. it does fade up to stars and stars It does. Change. And it shows Orion the Hunter. Oh. The constellation it shows is Orion the Hunter. Oh, shout out to our Stargate episode. Yeah. Because also William is referred to as the Hunter. The hunter. Jocelyn and things like that. And the fox. And my fo foxy lady. My foxy lady. Um... So his loyal friends and servants are Roland, what, and Kate, and also Chaucer, but he's more like a announcer. He's the MC of he's the. He's a friend the, by the he, end. Yes, but he is sort of he plays the role of the the MC. He's yeah. the one telling the story. Yeah, that's um, true. His love his love interest is Jocelyn, and his ne nemesis is Count Adamar. French, I believe. And of course, the, I think so, the um. The Black Prince also plays a small role, which we've already talked about, but a very small one. The role of deus ex machina. Yes. So in terms of society, um, social mobility in medieval times is very strict. Moving upwards often only came from the decree of the king. And while if you're already up, you could go further, especially if you had the favor of the king. The two most efficient ways to ascend to greater heights was to distinguish yourself in battle, fighting the king's enemies, or through marriage. However, usually socially advantageous marriages were locked, you, you, unless, for an instance, a higher-status man married a lower-ranked woman. So, for instance, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, brother to King Henry V, married Eleanor Cob Cobbin, whose father was a baron and mother was a Culpepper. Um, Culpeppers were sort of like a reasonably high family in England. They could ascend to greater heights, but they weren't. They were sort of like a middling nobility. 
to bring about Humphrey's fall from power, his rivals accused his wife of rich witchcraft, a very good uh, stratagem against women in this time. Uh, so, so even if a higher status man married a lower ranked woman, often to bring about the fall of the, the man's power, they would target his lower ranked wife, usually with things like accusations of witchcraft. It feels like it's, it's a, a great power because all you at this time it feels like all you got to do is like, hey, uh, that woman, a witch, and that they, that's all they need. They'll be like, yeah, all right, we yeah. believe you. Uh, yep, it, down. It's like it does uh, depend uh, on the woman and her status and also how politically savvy she is. But yes, it is. It they wouldn't need much there because like everyone, everyone sort of did things that could be, conf- like there were certain witchcrafts were which were allowed, like astrology was allowed as long as you weren't predicting the king's death because that's treason (laughs) or like you could get a love potion that's fine love magic is okay but any other magic is not okay so like it it was easy to fabricate events because they might have gone and seen an astrologer and they'll so all they have to say do is torture the astrologer they went to see until they say oh she was predicting the king's death and then that's treason and then they get killed simpler times it, yeah, it just sort of depends on the situation because witchcraft was leveled against a lot of influential women of the time and quite a few of the, like not everyone, but some of them managed to come out fairly unscathed. unscathed. Like Henry V himself, King of England, accused his stepmother, Joan of, well, his, yeah, his stepmother, Joan of Navarre, of witchcraft just to defraud her of her money. She had lots of money. He needed money. He was like, she's a witch. And then he was like, I'm not going to like press charges or anything. Can I just have all her money? Mm, he needs to be careful. Doesn't He doesn't want to be the boy who cried witch, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and also, so, yeah. So marrying too high was often locked to a lot of people because, especially if you're a woman, so if you're a sister of the king, for instance, your marriage belonged to a to a foreign alliance. You weren't going to marry for someone life. else. Sometimes you could get away with it. So, for instance, um, Edward the Fourth married Elizabeth Woodville. That's actually we might come back to that one. There's better examples of what I'm trying to say because that is also a socially advantaged marriage. But that's again a powerful man marrying a lower class woman. For instance, like um, uh, Catherine of Valois was Henry V's wife. So she was daughter of the French king. He married she married Henry V. He died like when her son was a month old and she decided to elope with her chamberer Owen Tudor, who was not he's basically a nobody. And that was allowed cuz she wasn't like she wasn't really going to be allowed to be regent because she's French. And they were like, we can't have a French person being regent for the king. It's like, yeah, I, I can see them being like, this is better than her trying to take power. Let her elope yeah. with that nobody. Yeah. But from her her elope, her eloping with Owen Tudor gave, provided two sons to that family, Edmund and Jasper. Edmund married Margaret of Beaufort, who had Henry VII, who became King Henry VII. So, like, it's through Catherine of Valois elopement and her marrying into the royal family, plus Edward III, that uh, that allows Edward VII to even take the throne. Of course, marrying Elizabeth of York is what allows him to keep it, but that choice for her to elope means that someone who should have had no claim to the throne at all 
could take it following the Wars of the Roses. So, like, it just shows how crazy medieval marriages and family yeah. life are. I mean, just the amount of, like, names that are the same is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Like, it's just... Would you reckon history is easy because they've just kept the same name and we changed the number? Or do you reckon it'd be easier if they all had different names? It's quite hard because you, you, like, I was trying to... There was um, there was a a moment in six that I was watching. It's very small, so you won't mind if I spoil it. But one of Henry the Sixth's wives, Henry the Eighth's wife, six wives, <laughs> so many, Already so many numbers, um, says to the other wives, "Why do you think everyone knows who we are? You know, do you know Henry? Do you know Henry the Seventh wife?" And I was like, Catherine of Valois. <laughs> to my TV, just me by myself. <laughs> and then and then they're like, she was like, do you know Henry the fifth's wife? No, Henry the seventh wife. And I was like, Elizabeth of York. They were like, Henry the sixth wife. And I was like, Margaret of Anjou. And then they're like, Henry the fifth wife. And I was like, Catherine of Valois. <laughs> I knew all three. <laughs> but they were trying to make the point that most <laughs> people don't, right? <laughs> people don't. And you were like, oh, I'm the weird one. Well, yeah. I'm the one who knows. <laughs> and then I told all my friends, because I, I couldn't be the only one. <laughs> Spread that information. Make it known. It does make it hard because it's all the same Henry. So you have to be like, okay, Henry the Fourth. Which one was that? Or you'd be like, okay, start from Henry the First, work down, and then you get sort of lost halfway through because they might change the name, and you might end up with a Richard in there, and you're like, I don't know where I am anymore. <laughs> but it's worse with French history, which is why I don't really go in for French history because. They have about three names for their kings, Louis. just three, Louis, Charles, and Philip. That's it. So you can just sort of take a stab in the dark when you're trying to think of someone. Like, for instance, Catherine of Valois' father was well known for being crazy. He thought he was made of glass and insisted everyone call him George. Now, do I know what number Charles he was? No, but I'm pretty sure he was a Charles. <laughs> So it does sort of like limit your choices. You can just sort of guess that it was a Philip, a Lewis, or a Charles, but you couldn't tell them what number. Yeah. It's like just uh, at a, pu- a pub quiz, it's like, look, they, they don't want a specific number. They just want the name. It's like, well, I got a one in three shot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we'll talk a bit about, again, another sort of thing of social mobility, another example, although I've already given you two, but I wrote this one down. So I'm going to share it. So Edward the Fourth. King Edward IV married Elizabeth Woodville. Um, so she was a divorcee and daughter of Baron Rivers, Ooh, so Sir Richard Woodville. Her mother, however, was Jaquetta of Luxembourg and connected to the Holy Roman Emperor. So Jaquetta had married the other brother of Henry V, who died, and then she eloped with Sir Richard Woodville, who became Baron Rivers was elevated basically upon marrying her because they were like we can't let Jaquetta who is from like one of the royal houses of France marry a no one better give him a title so he became Baron Baron Rivers so Jaquette both Jaquetta and her daughter Elizabeth were also accused of witchcraft naturally part of the politics of medieval England it just feels like if you're a woman in this time at some point you're going to get accused of witchcraft you better get ready for it yeah work on a strong defense and then yeah just prepare yeah. So Elizabeth's parents' match was a love match and one outside of royal sanction, hence the elopement. The same could mostly be said for Elizabeth. Um, basically, she married the king in secret, and then when someone tried to organise a marriage to a French princess for him, he had to be like, actually, sorry, guys, I'm already married. 
She's an English woman. This is Elizabeth. <laughs> she's a divorcee. She's already been married once. She has two sons already, which means she's fertile at least. Come on. <laughs> but it meant that her whole Elizabeth's whole family could be raised through Elizabeth's marriage to the king. So all all her she had lots of sisters. So these daughters of a baron could marry dukes. And dukes are only one step down from the king. They're his closest peerage. So basically, all these what what the normal nobility would have seen as basically commoners could marry the highest into the highest echelons of society and basically take all the husbands from everyone else, which is why no one really liked her family. <laughs> so, and I mean, Elizabeth does survive. She survives her accusation of witchcraft, as does her mother. However, a lot of the men in their family do die during the Wars of the Roses. So, like, usually it's said that marrying above your station doesn't end well. I mean, it's good if you can live, survive it. But, for instance, like, um, with Humphrey and Eleanor Cobbin, they were basically shunt, like, they were like, you can remain married, but you can never see her again. So they lived out the remainder of their lives following her basic her downfall in completely separate areas of the country and he was never allowed to see her again even though they married like they married for love he was in love with her most likely you know it's it's unlikely that he would have married her if he wasn't because she was so far below his station but it doesn't yeah the survival is really the best option you've got it's very very rare that you get to live out your lives together happily if you marry above or below your station in, 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 in dramatic fashions, such as what William does with Jocelyn, who is of a uh, high, high noble class, and he's a Thatcher's son. I feel like that was something I was thinking when I was rewatching it for this episode. I was like, I don't know a lot about Jocelyn. Like, I know she's highborn, yeah. but I don't know to what level where no. she's just traveling around doing her own thing i was like very mysterious lady i assume she's french because i'm pretty sure she they meet in rouen yeah but i yeah jocelyn is not given a lot of she's not given a lot of background we know that count adam she's high enough for count adam to be a potential match for her certainly but that's really all we know. But she's there to give, you know, wisdom and be, you know, the foil to William's glory. Um, I don't know. I do enjoy Jocelyn. But, yeah, she's not She's not very empowered, I would <laughs> say. But she does, like, there is a lot of, um, it's, it's, we'll get into this more, but it's textbook Trafalgar romance. Like, she's here for her night. She's the, she's the loyal maiden who will sleep with the pigs if it means that William gets to live, which is classic. And I love when they have that whole, like, see, it's like kind of like she's using the code against him. He's like, if yeah. you love me, you will lose. And then yeah. she was like, actually, you'll win now. Like, yeah. playing with it. And he was like, I, I guess I got to do this. <laughs> got to yeah. prove to her. And, and it, yeah, it makes for a great, great movie sequence where he's just sitting there on the horse and he just keeps getting battered and he's just like... Because I love her, that's why I'm doing this. And like, what's like, you're gonna lose me so much money. And then, yeah, that's why they call it gambling. <laughs> Great movie. If you ha- if you haven't seen it and you're still listening, a why and b yeah. go imp- improve your life and watch it. Yeah, right. Just it, bring happiness and joy into your life. Get get on the great soundtrack. Just yeah, discover. Anyway, back to 
the content, I suppose. Um, the other main, I suppose, part of society that plays into this, which we've talked about a little bit, um, uh, Chanson's Digest. I'm not very – it's been a while since I've done French. I did do it in year 12, but it has been a long time. Uh, you nailed the uh, – the what was it? The, the qualities of uh... – <laughs> chivalry those were very well pronounced okay yeah but i just they were pretty easy they yeah. had the very french sort of writing yeah. and i'll chanson's all... digest isn't very french looking chanson's digest i would say that's the best you're gonna get i should have put it in italics because that's what the others were in and it really helped me get into the field italics feel very french yeah because they're fancy and pointless yeah <laughs> <laughs> Sick burn on any French listeners. I'm so sorry. Please keep listening. Um, so that translates to basically Song of Deeds. It's basically epic poems in the medieval times. Um, so chivalric romance, such which are featured in a lot of these Song of Deeds, been both about and primarily for the chivalric aristocrats. So it's like it's like this one's about you. Would you like to hear it? And they'll say yes. Yes, I love to hear about me. I love to hear about me. More about me. Or or I'll be like, I wrote this song. It's about Lancelot and Guinevere. You're just sitting here doing needlepoint. Would you like to hear it? And they say, yes, love to. Please spare me from my needlepoint or whatever. (laughs) So all these songs were written like about these ideals of like chivalry for the people that chivalry was created for. So they they address the way that the knighthood of the later 12th century saw itself and especially how it wanted to be seen by others. So it's like, this is how we see ourselves, but this is also how you should imprint this on your mind as how we are. <laughs> and, it, and it sort of works because the, the ideas, the understanding we have of chivalry today is founded in a lot of these poems and a lot of these songs so it replicates itself so you know it's it's building off the code but it's also morphing it into this idealized romanticized understanding that we still have today about what chivalry means and the stories of chivalry so for an audience that is increasingly preoccupied preoccupied with courtliness it depicts chivalry as the individual demonstration of ideal valor so Typically, a member of the knightly class will set out on a journey or a quest to solve a problem confronting him on this journey, which is, you know, an in, uninterrupted series of adventures. So, you know, we go here, we do this thing. Oh, another adventure, another adventure. Um, he will demonstrate his superior qualities and the adherence to social, military and religious principles through feats of arms, often against marvelous or magical opposition in otherworldly places. So, Dragons. Dragons. George and the dragon. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's all about, you know, I defeated the dragon who is a representation of Satan. I will now pray to God because I'm pious and I'm a knight. I'm a very pious knight and I believe in God and I love God and it's all, all for his glory, that sort of stuff. Because you have to remember this is, medi- this is medieval England, like God is big. <laughs> And like it's yeah, it's, that's one way of putting it. He was church is a huge part of life, and for nobles, it wasn't just about being pious. It was about being seen as being pious, as much as it was about the actual practice of piety, of like of religious observance and things like that. Um, so the most 
definitive principle of this type of like I I know song cycle I guess is courtly love. So the service and word and deed to ladies by lovers deemed inferior. Courtly love is huge in medieval England, but especially in uh, specific reigns, like the reign of Henry VIII, again, coming back to six, he was a big believer in the idea of courtly love. The idea of chivalry was huge for him. So, like, it factored into a lot of his, uh, like, ideas about courting and ideas about himself and how, like, so he, like, it makes sense that when he was younger and he was very attractive, that he had this, like, chivalric knight ideal that, that he then stuck to, and it stuck with him for all his life, even though he got continuously fatter and, and you know, he's got an ulcerous leg and he's basically obscene and he's got a huge cob piece. And but he's still very charming. It's yeah, but he he still holds on to this ideal of of the of the knight that he was, I guess, or like the ideal of the knight. Um, and then it also plays into his courting of his wives and things like that. It works a bit better with Catherine of Aragon because he's young and handsome, gets slightly less good as he goes along and gets fatter and more ulcerous. But it, it's always there, like it's always like the jousts were huge and things like that. It was it just this I these ideas that circulate in songs, in stories, infiltrate the life of the court itself and rulers use it to build their reins around and to articulate the not just the enormity of their power but to define their power by it. So it's it's a huge thing and it's just crazy because like it's not, it's not really something that factors into our lives now, I suppose. I mean, we still have moral codes and values that we have, but they're not really chivalric. We don't really have knights as such. But we all have this understanding of the knight and, like, what the knight stood for, even if we haven't necessarily engaged with any actual original sort of song cycle about it. We've all seen – there's all so much media that's based upon it because we just can't – we just can't stop being fascinated by the idea of the – the guy who rides around saving people and doing good deeds and then fighting dragons and, and getting, I suppose, riches and ladies, but, you know, having his the love that he can never properly have because she's married to someone else who's a lord and he's not a lord. You know, it just, I don't know, it just fascinates us. We can't stop I mean, consuming it, still, it. It still exists. Like if you look at like, Superman is just like an evolution of this. Like he he wants to be, but he can't be a part of. It. He's above. Every, it's evolution of this same. Like yeah, it, it all has roots back in like this chivalrous idea. Yeah, yeah. So I would say that's a good point. A lot of super superheroes are based on a similar sort of code. Or you get like you know, fantasy redoes knights in lots of different ways. Um, but you get even like the Jedi, they have a code, they have like a chivalric code. It's like, it comes, it comes into a lot of, like when it comes into the, um, making of, I suppose, heroes, I guess it's something that people will always think about, even if they don't know it consciously, it's just something that we know about. So it always filters in the idea of having, you have to have, if you're, you know, if you're going out on an adventure, You'll have to decide on your morals. You have, and like even the doctor, the doctor has rules. Good men don't need rules. Good men 
you know, now's not the day to find out why I have so many. You know, <laughs> it comes into it comes into so many different things. The idea that in embarking on a quest in order to do good things, in order to serve people, you also have to decide where your lines are. You have to decide what you live by and how you employ it in life. And that's just something that comes into so many different types of stories, I guess. And they, they've all started from, from this root idea of chivalry and, and like the, the four or whatever, the four things that you have to do or you have to prove or whatever, you know, generosity, prowess, things like that. Debonair. <laughs> I love debonair. It's a fun word to say. I'm not even sure that was quite right. Oh, no, it's debonairite, but it still means debonair. Yeah. Noble manners. So, yeah, it comes back to those things. Martial prowess, courtesy, good breeding, noble manners, generosity. All right. So now we're going to get into some history. I mean, we've already done a bit, but this is a heavily history episode because there's just uh, – it's there's so much because it's found – the foundation of the story is built on our actual history. History is cool. That is also true. Finger guns. That's true. If you're like, if you're still listening, you got to think history is cool because we're not stopping now. The trains are chugging. We're going, (laughs) going forward. So the Knight's Tale, we've already talked about this a bit, but one of 24 stories in the Canterbury Trails by Geoffrey Chaucer. Have you read the Canterbury Trails? No, I haven't. Okay. Uh, wait, no, I've read, I did I did a medieval myths and legends class in Canada, along with my cultural history of vampires class. Canada, man, you just, you really, it's like, <laughs> what are they doing over there? Do you want to know what my full semester was? I did a cultural history of vampires, uh, myths and legends of the Middle Ages, a history of rock and roll, and then I did, what was my last class? Oh, I did Greek and Roman mythology. Oh, sounds great. I had a good time. So, <laughs> During my um, Middle Ages class, I did, I think, read one or two of the Canterbury Tales, possibly even the Knight's Tale, but it was, it was, there was a lot going on in that class. Yeah, it's also a hard thing to like, I may have read it. I read a lot of old English and it's kind of just, it, it's, it's old, or is it middle? <laughs> just, I don't remember. It might be middle. Uh, it might be the beginning of middle. I think it's middle. Yeah. Because he kind of developed middle, I think. Didn't yeah. He? Yeah. English language, year but 11. Old, old English is like Beowulf. Yeah. Which is, I think we also did that in Middle Ages. But again, it's just like, yeah, I don't really remember it. Um, but I've definitely read a little bit. But anyway, the chivalric romance that is the Knight's Table tale, tale was based on Giovanni Boccaccio's, sorry, Italian, you know, um, Tessada. And though it was it it wasn't originally written as part of the Canterbury collection, he adapted it to fit. He basically adapted that previous story to fit with the Knight's Tale. Um, so in the in the original story that Chaucer adapted, there's two cousins, Palamon and Arkite, Ar- Arsite. I would say Arkite. Both fall in love with Emily, sister of Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons, and she's married to their captor Theseus, of course. So a tournament is held in which the two rivals compete for her hand. Although Arkite wins, he is thrown from his horse and dies. And then after a period of mourning, Palamon and Emily marry because, of course. He's like, oh, well, I'm sad, but it worked out. Yeah. So the Knight's Tale is sort of loosely based on that. Um, And then, obviously, (laughs) 
an unknight's tale is loosely based on that. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of layering. So we'll talk a bit about Edward of Woodstock. So he's better known as the Black Prince after his distinctive Such armor. Such a cool title. He's so cool. Um, and Marshall, all a martial reputation. So they're not really sure because it, it he was never called that during his actual life. It happened afterwards that someone was like the Black Prince and everyone was like, damn, that's cool. Let's just call him that. Yeah, it's way cool. So he was, again, the eldest son of Edward III of England. Um, and, again, not until the 16th century that he was actually called the Black Prince. And it is mostly thought because he had distinctive black armour and a distinctive jousting shield. But, like, they don't know for sure. They just It just sort of happened. Um, so his tournament helmet is hung above his tomb and it's black, so... That sort of gives them the idea that it might have been his armor. So it has a large, la- large molded leather iron on top of it. Um, or his nickname could have been given to him by the French for his martial reputation. And the, um, he sort of had a scorched earth strategy that he used when he was fighting the French and it was not pretty. So it might have been from that. But they, they can't say for sure. Um, so another of his emblems was three white ostrich feathers set against a black background, and still today the ostrich feathers are used as a symbol of the Prince of Wales. Because when I think Wales, I think ostrich, just <laughs> native bird to Wales. No, when you think of Wales, you think dragon because it's on their flag. <laughs> yeah. But we'll get into that. No, uh, so he probably would have chosen the ostrich feathers as his emblem. And Prince of Wales is a title that always goes to the The first son. And then the second son gets Duke of York, usually, I think. Speaking of like, so he picked his... I'm really bummed that's not a thing we do anymore. I'd love to be able to have like a... Like a, I get to pick my symbol. Yeah, and you get to pick your own, not one that gets handed down. But like, oh, you've reached your age now, you're a man, design your coat of arms. Yeah. Admittedly, it's probably like your first hotmail address and you go back and like, why did I do that? Now I'm stuck with this for the rest of my life. But, you know, still be cool. Yeah, and heraldry is a really interesting thing because like every herald heraldic symbol has its own meaning. So you'd be like, a lion meets this, so I'll have three lions and then I'll have a crown because I'm royal or whatever. And they all have their each meanings and you sort of like craft them to be like, when people look at this, but when they know it's you, they have to know that that's Morgan Dunn's banner. Yeah. Look, Morgan's on the field. He's here. I can see his I really Megatron like cats. flag. I want to fit as many lions on there as possible. Can I have my Udi as my hair? <laughs> it's got German shepherds on it and it's green. Just the Udi pattern is your coat of No, arms. you just hang an Udi on like a stick. <laughs> I am um, here. Yeah, I have arrived. It has to be. It has to be distinct enough that when soldiers on the battlefield see it, they can go, "Ah, oh, this person has arrived." Ah, they're here. Um, I should be afraid. But it also should have symbolic meaning. Hence, why you have like the different types of animals and stuff. And now that I'm talking about this, I realize I should have looked up what ostrich feathers stand for, but I didn't. Um, it probably doesn't matter. But yeah, it is sort of like a. It is sort of like a cool thing to like be like, "Oh, do we have?" Like, I'm pretty sure because we're, we are Irish, like I, the Dunn name is Irish, even if we're not, we're not fully Irish, Morgan, but like Damn. the Dunn family for sure has a coat of arms, but like, it'd be cool if we could like design our own and be like the Dunn family from Melbourne, Victoria, this is our coat of arms. And then we can like put it outside our house, like on a stick, have like a flag. 
Did you look up what ostrich feathers are? Oh, I found like a whole thing. I'm I'm learning. Because apparently okay, they still they still use it for rugby and stuff. Yeah, uh, it's it really though. Uh, ostrich feathers. Technically, the badge of the Duke of Cornwall. It originated yeah. with Edward the Black Prince. Stuff we've already covered. Uh, he inherited the standard and motto from his mother, Queen Philippa. Um, uh, of course. Uh, uh, so here we go. Uh, legend says that after the Battle of Cressy, uh, the first major battle of the Hundred Years' War, Cressy, Cressy, in 1346, that the prince took the helmet off vanquished John I of Bohemia, which was lined with ostrich feathers. The three uh, feathers okay. designed is based on the fleur de lis. That's all I got. Okay, yeah, all right. That that, that makes sense. Yeah, so defeat the uh, an amazing defeat of an enemy, um, and then also. Um, part of the Fleddily incorporating France into his own emblem to be like, I also own France because my father's the King of England. Ha 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 ha. Probably. So it's all works. like, look at me, look at me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And it means that it's distinctive. So when he enters the field in France to battle them, they'll be like, oh fuck, it's Edward. Oh, oh fuck, we're fucked. <laughs> it's Edward. <laughs> I see his ostrich feathers. He's coming for us. Yeah, that's. it's meant to do that. And it would remind them of that defeat. And they'll be like, oh, no, we lost to him already. Well, oh, well, Bohemia isn't France. But, like, they'll be like, he defeated that guy. And he also defeated us a couple of times. Oh, no. Anyway, Edward was buried in Canterbury Cathedral. And his effigy, original black helmet and shield, is still hung on display there today. So you can go and see that. Oh, I want to see that. He's a pretty cool – I mean – uh, he he's he seems like a pretty cool. He seems like a cool figure in that like he's called the Black Prince and he's like wears black armor and you're like oh that's kind of that's so metal basically. Yeah. But he's probably like 100. percent He's committed atrocities that we will yeah. never know. It's like he's and- just lucky that history didn't get all of the atrocities down. <laughs> So he isn't well, that tough. The ones he did, people are like, but he was so good at being a military leader. He was very, he, <laughs> he was very brutal, but he was very good at it. <laughs> he was very effective. Um, but yeah, uh, so I feel kind of bad saying he seems sort of rad, but like the i the the concept, the the aesthetic he's working within is rad. What about a rebranding? The Rad Prince of Wales. <laughs> Prince of Wales. <laughs> Like the Fresh Prince of Billet. Yeah, there, it's yeah? like the oh, TV show. Yes. <laughs> we'll, put, we'll do a pitch in 10 on it. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, the name that William Thatcher assumes. Oh, wait. Today. If we're going to do this one, I'm going to I'm gonna put a sound clip here to introduce it. So uh, I'll let, I'm going to put it here. The one, the only, Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein. <laughs> All right, so uh, <laughs> he makes me. He's quick. He's funny. He makes me lots of money. Lichtenstein. But yes, go on. He's blonde. He's pissed. You'll see him in the Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so the name that William Thatcher assumes to commit his his nightly fraud is Ulrich von Lichtenstein, and he seems to have been a real thirteenth century knight. So he wrote. A dubious biography, so it's not like it's embellished, shall we say, called The Service of Ladies, which, you know, you can tell in what way it's probably embellished. 
Um, yep. So the central event of the service of ladies is, is an extended tour of Southern Europe referred to as the journey of Venus, you know, the goddess of love, um, which Auric undertakes dressed throughout in the guise of Queen Venus in honor of love. So he's basically touring around. He sounds like a character. <laughs> dressed as dressed as Queen Venus. Um, and on this tour, he gives out scores of golden rings, one for every knight who breaks a lance on him. He sends out events notice to the cities he's going to visit, and knights come out in every city to win honor in the name of their own ladies against this knight in disguise. Um, he does this to win the love of a capricious lady. So you can see the parallels to what they've also taken of William's story. So William competes to win the love of Jocelyn. So he's taken the nom de plume of Ulrich von Lichtenstein, who, in his own words, so like take it with a grain of salt, but in his own words, did this tour competing against other knights in the name of love, dressed as Venus, and giving out scores of riches to the knights who come out to face him in the name of love. You know, pretty, that's a, I think that's, if they did that on purpose, and I have to think they do, that's so smart. <laughs> that's amazing world building right there to be like this guy, this this real, possibly real guy who wrote this weird story that may be real but probably isn't. Let's give his name to our knight who's trying to win the love of a noble of a capricious noble lady and has to and participates in jousts for that, but also is requested to lose those jousts and then win them. Yeah, it's very well thought out. It's hard, it it's hard not to think that they knew what they were doing. It's like, they knew. Like, the amount of thought that has gone into this movie when you research it is like, yeah, they knew. Surely they knew. And, like, I really appreciate that when I was looking at it, like, so I sort of like, well, how do historians sort of feel about this? And I, I once listened to a podcast that it's a history podcast that does specifically historical movies, and they said, you know, we really like this movie. And like a couple of other historians, like we really like this movie because not because it's accurate, but because it, it is so true to the spirit of how, of how exciting the jazz were and how that stuff felt for the people who could attend it and how these stories of courtly love work and then how they make the audience participate in those. It, it, in the time that this was set, this is sort of like, this is like our, version of, of, of a this is our chivalric sort of romance this is something that we can recognize because it's anachronistic but it has all the hallmarks of of a true court romance of a true chivalric romance it's got all of that and we'll talk about a bit more about that in mythology lore and legend but the last bit of history i have to share is that Ald Ad count adamar works for the free companies or works with the free companies or runs the three companies um, so the free companies, also known as the great companies, were basically mercenaries for hire. So they're actually not that great. It's He makes it sound really good in the movie, but they're basically just mercenaries for hire. Um, they often had romantic names like the Company of the Hook, the Company of the Rose, and the White Company. They were highly specialized and highly skilled. Um, one might have been known for, for like crossbowmen, while another for lances, artillery, or cavalry. They featured larger-than-life characters. So the main one that I found when I was researching was Arnold de Courval, Cur a clergyman turned mercenary who became known across the continent as the Archpriest. Oh, everyone has such cool names. Right. Yeah, he was, and he, yeah, I mean, I'm sure, um, again, atrocities committed for sure, but, like, a cool name um, and, like, it, it, 
good backstory. Good backstory. And like you get like where like there's so much to pull for, from in history that you can tell has made its way into fantasy that we understand. So like you think about like you get the mercenary companies in George R. 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 Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, based, probably company. based off the probably based off the free companies. Real things that existed in our world that people like they read fantasy and they're like, wow, this is cool. And you're like, well, it probably came from something that already existed. And like you got a guy called the Archpriest who's who was a priest who became a mercenary. <laughs> Very cool. Cutting people's heads off. You know, I'm like that's I mean, atrocities. Yes, you know. I mean, yeah, Game of Thrones specifically. Like, it's been well stated that uh, George R. R. Martin is like loves the war, like the War of the Roses and stuff. Yes, so, like, I imagine he's very like a lot of stuff. That like, yeah, the the white the Golden Company is probably based on that. Like, he pulls from history. Fans, yeah. So like, it's like but, the like, most obvious. Thing. Even you're currently reading what you were when I last checked, but you're reading Brandon Sanderson at my request because he's one of my favorite authors. You know, um. I'm not sure if you know this, but Dalinar Colin is um, Dalinar Colin, um, military commander in Stormlight Archive, based off a a general in like from like not like not like Kublai Khan, but like similar time period, similar um, similar like culture. So like from like a what's the word? I can't remember. It starts with M. Mongol. From like like based on a Mongol general. That's cool. So like even that pulls from history, but a different sort of history, which is nice because we do get a lot of like recycled, you know, European centric history and fantasy, and it's all very white and it's kind of boring. And we can blame J.R.R. Tolkien for that, but also like he knew what he was doing. You can't lie, but he did sort of start that trend, so we can blame him a little bit. But you know, just there's so much of history to pull from that can make its way into into such interesting, diverse uses, especially in a genre like fantasy. And what I'm saying is basically you should go out and you should read as much fantasy as possible because why not? And also we're in lockdown, so where else are you going to go? Yeah. To the supermarket? <laughs> listen to this podcast first, then, then read. read. Read and listen to this podcast while wow, you're so time. good at multitasking. Oh, I can't imagine anything worse. I have to concentrate yeah, when I read. Cool. I couldn't have people talking in my ears. I can watch. I can, like, I like it. What I tend to do is I, like, re- read while mum and dad are watching TV. So, like, they'll put something on. Like, for instance, if we're watching Below Deck, I can't read because I have to watch. I have to know what happens. But if it's, like, dad really likes this Alaskan show called Life Below Zero where they all live, like, X, mile, X miles away from the Arctic Circle and they survive and, like, I care about some people on that show, but most of it I don't care about. So I read while they're watching it because I don't care about, the, obviously, the guy who would have been a serial killer if he didn't move to Alaska and live in the middle of nowhere and become a subsistence hunter. I don't care about him. I'm so glad he had the self-awareness he... to be like, I'm going to go do this so I don't do serial killing. Yeah. I don't know if he was that self-aware, but he's like, I really like subsistence hunting. I love skinning animals and, like, selling their furs and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'm glad you live in Alaska by yourself. <laughs> yeah, and you never experimented on anything else. Yeah. He never broadened his horizons, which is good in this Yeah, he, he, he was like, I graduated and I immediately moved to Alaska. And I was like, that was a good call for you. <laughs> good call. Anyway, the language of this film is obviously English. Um in, but not in English both... that you would know now. I mean, some of it well, is, but some of it's not. Some of it. It's also English in like thought and action, action, 
because you have to remember that a lot of this movie is also set in France and they take a very like this England during the Hundred Years War stance in that they were like French people suck <laughs> and like not like not like aggressively but like you get it in like there's like a rivalry there that they set up within the movie. So it's very, it is very English. Yeah, everyone. Except that they cast Heath Ledger, an Australian actor, as the main character. <laughs> an interesting choice. But I'm happy with it. I'm okay with it. He is very good. I'm glad. Oh, yeah. I and if you can, it. yeah, you should enjoy this movie um, as much as you can because it does have a young Heath Ledger in it and he is just absolutely delightful and we do, we do miss him. And now I'm sad <laughs> as we move on to mythology, lore, and legend. All right. So this movie is very good at detailing the components of a chivalric romance, which I've already sort of talked about, but we're going to talk about a little bit more detail. So it's so good at detailing, not just like the elements of it, so the things that build into it, but also the experience of those romances and what they're what that was for the people of the time. So they were for entertainment purposes, which as were the tournaments, which this movie is also really good at showing in a light that shows us how exciting those things were. So one of the key components in chivalric fiction is the discovery of noble birth, also disguising your identity. So William Thatcher becoming at the end of the night, aside from just providing satisfaction is also textbook for this type of fiction in medieval times. So when at the end, and I do love the end, it is very satisfying. So basically, and if you haven't watched it, I'm sorry, spoilers, but what are you doing? Um, the Black Prince of Wales, Edward, he, so William is in the stocks. He's been arrested because his fraud as a knight has been discovered. But in the crowd, when they're hurling rotten stuff at him, is Edward, the Black Prince of Wales, and he dramatically takes off his hood and walks forward and he leans down to William Thatcher and he, and he says, actually, I wonder if I've actually written it down because I, I, I wish I'd quoted this. I didn't. I should have. Anyway, he leans down and he says, your men love you. If I knew nothing else about you, that would be enough. But you also tilt when you should withdraw. And that is nightly too. And then he orders his men to release him. And he takes out his sword and he says, my personal historians have discovered <laughs> that this man is descended from an ancient royal line. <laughs> and then he knights him on the spot uh, and he becomes Sir William Thatcher. Now, textbook for a chivalric romance, but also because medieval lineage is so fucked up, when he says ancient royal, like I remember one time we're watching this with dad and dad laughed at that. And I said, why are you laughing? And then I was like, is it because he missed out on the chance to be king? And dad said, yeah, basically, he could have, he, <laughs> like an ancient royal line, he could have been king. But because medieval lineage is so fucked up, saying he's descended from an ancient royal line could mean anything because it doesn't have to be English. He could have been, it could have been Celtic. He could have been descended from anyone. He could Anglo-Saxon. It's Northern. very vague. We don't know. It could be any, and that's the thing. That's why it's possible. Because, <laughs> like, it's not. He's not saying, you know, you're my long lost brother. Welcome to the family. He's saying, I don't know. You're 
ten times great grandfather was a Celtic chieftain, yeah. or your descended like... you're descended from the kings of Dalriata in Scotland. Like it could be anything. He was like, "It's a good chance." He's, he's like, "I'm like," he's like, "It's probably a good chance." I'm not even lying right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my personal historian, <laughs> my but anyway. I mean, if anyone could have found it out, it would have been the king slash prince of England. But you know, it's like. Even if he was lying, it doesn't matter because yeah, it's are they entirely do? plausible. What are they going to do about it? <laughs> what are they going to do about it? Also, he's a prince. His word goes, I knighted him myself. Are you questioning me? Treason. You know, that's how that conversation goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So chivalric romances are often connected to mythology because Middle Ages myths and legends were super weird. I can guarantee that because I did a Middle Ages myths and legends class. So there's lots of slaying dragons and also Christian werewolves. That's right, werewolves are a Christian. You heard it here first. Interesting. They believe in God. Werewolves believe in God? Yeah, you can just Google Christian werewolves and you'll probably find the story of that. It is very interesting. Well, you know, interesting in the fact that it's got Christian werewolves. It's not, like, super complicated. Um, so the story, the, the, the classic story, is King Arthur, right? Yeah. Yeah. Would you say you know about King Arthur more? Yeah, he had a round table and some other knights and stuff. <laughs> yeah, nice, yeah. nice decor, some good furniture. <laughs> yeah, he, he was master of the feng shui. Yeah. <laughs> so most people I would say know about King Arthur. It's a story that keeps having different renditions as we go on. In fact, I'm going to recommend one at the end of the podcast. All right, so in the most famous, I suppose, uh, compendium maybe or the most well-known story in terms of what came out of the middle ages was sir thomas mallory's *Le mort d'arthur because it was the first book published and it was published in 1485 so like it's famous and it also had a lot of additions made to it so like things that weren't there before got added in which is ridiculous which is it's not even worth saying because the thing about the Arthur myth is that there's so different, so many different versions that you could you could never compile them all together because they were just people would just expand and add in new characters and new stories as they wanted. It's so just it's the, it's the original fan fiction then. Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So in Lamont Lamont Dather, so Gareth is first makes his appearance and becomes the Knight of the Round Table. Once his noble heritage is revealed. So again, you see it, the noble heritage, the the disguise. So these stories then become part of the real world by kings weaponizing them for propaganda. Ooh. So like Henry, that says Henry VIII, it's meant to be Henry VII. Henry VII named his firstborn son Arthur to usher in a new Arthurian age because it's all about propaganda. You know, England's one true king. I'm just picturing like a poster and it's a knight pointing and it says, Arthur wants you in his round table. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. <laughs> and like, <laughs> and I have a quote here because we're going to talk about it. Um, but after Roland asked William for his name, what's your name, William? You're not a noble. He says, Roland says, you're not of noble birth. And William replies with this. He says, well, so we lie. <laughs> and you know what? People did that shit all the time. It was people, lawless. People did that shit all the time. In doing so, they basically participate in their own mythology and often call back to popular mytholo- mythological figures as part of their family line. 
regardless of how ridiculous that is. And you'll see what I mean by ridiculous when I talk about this next point, which is Melusina. And if anyone doesn't know about Melusina, it's another topic that I recommend looking into because it's super weird. So Melusina and the House of Luxembourg. Remember Jaquetta of Luxembourg? We talked about her before. She's descended from Melusina because Melusina has a couple of creature categories that I've decided to call them applied to her. So she can be a half snake lady or the most common interpretation is that she's basically a freshwater mermaid. So she exists in a fountain. <laughs> so either part fish or part snake in a fountain. Uh, other other sort of creature categories that she has are part fairy, part goddess. So basically just a catch-all sort of weird fish person. Something fishy going on. Yeah, you know, some interpretation of a water goddess slash a fairy slash any sort of other mythological creature that exists around water in medieval times. That's her. Um, her stories all have the same basic content, which the House of Lux Luxembourg co-opted. So we're like, ah, we'll take this story and we'll conveniently shoehorn in someone from our house into that story. So... Her stories more or less go like this. Melusina was born half fairy slash deity slash snake slash fish and half human. When her mother punished her for wrongdoings against her father, Melusina was cursed to become a serpent from the waist down until she met a man who would marry her under the condition of never seeing her on Saturday and keeping that promise to never see her on Saturday because like she could maintain a human form except for Saturdays and that's when she would have to go sit in the fountain and become a half snake again. I'm getting some Little Mermaid vibes. Yeah it is very Little Mermaid. Um, the Luxembourgs claimed their ancestor Siegfried was the one who married Melusina. So their story goes he became enchanted with her when he met her in the forest and asked her hand in marriage agreeing not to see her on Saturdays under any circumstance she made their castle of Bok appear the morning after their wedding out of nothing, just fucking by magic, just straight up, here's a castle. Yeah, magic happens. Melusina then bore him many children and he kept his promise until, of course, one day his father and brothers began teasing him about his wife's strange behavior. Why can you never see her on Saturdays? That's so weird, man. And the then Saturdays going, are for the girls. Right, it's, it's a girl's day. Self-care. <laughs> She's got to have a day off. That's her me time to be a snake. Yeah. Anyway, every, don't you? Every woman turns into a snake on Saturdays. You just don't see it. It's a well kept secret. Yeah, we all t we we all ha we're all actually part snake people. Saturdays, girls' day, we all turn into half snakes and get wild. <laughs> anyway, getting curious, Siegfried went upstairs and opened the door to his wife bathing seeing that from the waist down, her body had been transformed into a serpent's tail. Melusina, realizing that her husband had broken his promise, she left. She just said, piss off. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Um, from then on, Melusina's cry would haunt her descendants with tragic news of impending death. And it was from this misery that, misery that Jaquetta's line sprang. So Jaquetta would share the magic of her ancestor and would be haunted for life with the sad song of impending death and doom to her house. Now, <laughs> it's your choice to believe what you wish. 
whether or not the House of Luxembourg really was descended from a mythical water goddess or not. But that's what they said they were. And it has proven really good fodder for historical fiction writers out there. Like, for instance, Philippa Gregory or, like, any, like all the, you know, the White Princess, the White Queen, all of those things that are available on stand to watch, all of those partake in that particular rendition of the House of Luxembourg's self-styling. So that's one example of participating in your own version of myths and saying you're related to an ancient creature. It's kind of like the OG version of like a Tinder bio, right? Like, here's everything you need to know. And then... <laughs> yeah, so, so it would be like, uh, it, Tinder bio, let's, let's brainstorm. It would be Siegfried of Luxembourg, age, I don't know, 30 maybe. Uh, divorced by my water goddess wife, looking for love. Enjoys long Duck walks. Dislikes like snakes. <laughs> Dislikes snakes. <laughs> no snake ladies, please. <laughs> Real human woman this time, please. Done that magic shit, over it. Has to be available seven days a week. <laughs> yeah. Also, we have, I already have like 13 kids, so, you know, good good mothering instincts would be nice as well. Uh, yeah. Another example is Cadwalla and Henry VII. So Henry VII was born Henry Earl of Richmond and a descendant of two powerful, ally, powerful families of Lancaster, Beaufort and Tudor. We already talked about this a bit because I went off on a rant, which happens regularly when I think <laughs> things. Um However, these lines were connected to royalty only through the maternal line. So he was descended through the Tudor line from Catherine of Valois, which we already discussed, Henry V's wife and a princess of France. Again, she married her chamber servant in secret, tying the Tudors to the royal Lancaster line. The Beauforts, his, the, his mother's family, were descended from the originator of the House of Lancaster, so the one that gave the Lancastrian line their name, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. Uh, so they were descended through his mistress, who then became his third wife, Catherine Swindon. Um, they were illegitimate, but they were legitimized by John of Gaunt, so he acknowledged them. But in doing that, they were barred from ever claiming the English throne by Act of Parliament. So although they had been acknowledged as part of the royal line, they could never inherit the throne, except in the insane events of the Wars of the Roses, which made it possible for Henry VII to take these two extremely weak lines that are descended through the maternal line, which should never have allowed him to inherit the throne, to actually take and hold the throne from Richard III, because everyone was like, I'm not sure about that guy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Both houses of York and Lancaster, so Henry VII, Lancastrian, his wife Elizabeth of York is House of York. Um, they both claim descent from the mythical from the mythical King Arthur, from the myth of King Arthur, who, if he was even a little bit real, has usually been traced back to a Celtic chieftain, so not even really English. That's yeah. All right. Interesting. So, <laughs> yeah. So King Arthur's legend has been detailed in a lot of different ways. Um, originally it was written as, it was recorded, I suppose, as though it was history, which people did back then. They would just say, no, this was real, and people believed them. And then it became part of the canon of medieval romances. So 
early Welsh literature worked to make Arthur into a king of wonders and marvels. Geoffrey of Monmouth is basically the godfather of the King Arthur story. So he was the first one to record it, which, and the idea is that it's based on a prophecy. And he recorded it in his Historia Regum Britanniae, or History of Kings of Britain. Um, the basic prophecy is that it's foretold that Arthur would become the one true king of the Britons, um, and then he would uh, unite, unite all the people of Britannia under his leadership. So that's basically, that's the, the smallest part of the story that then grows and grows in a million different directions and has a million different cast of characters. But that's the smallest kernel it started with. It was the prophecy. The prophecy of Merlin was also detailed. And you know who Merlin is, Morgan? Give us a lowdown. Uh, he was a, a wizard, Harry. You're you're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> yeah, no, a funky he, wizard man. He he was uh the the magic like in fantasy the king always has like a magician or someone as part of yes. the court. He was the magician uh as part of Arthur's court, and um I think is tied somewhere somehow to sword in the stone. I'm not hundred percent sure, but yeah. yeah, yeah, basically that yeah. Um yes, he's a funky wizard man. And that is how he's often portrayed as a funky wizard man, especially in the Sword in the Stone, the uh, like the the cartoon, the movie we watched as kids, where he's just like this old dude who wears board shorts and Hawaiian sh- and Hawaiian shirts. Do you remember that? Yeah, very anyway. cool old man just doing his own thing with magic. Yeah. Um, so the prophecy of Merlin was also detailed in Historia Regum Britannia. Prophecies by nature are ambiguous and can be interpreted in many ways. Anyone who's read any sort of fantasy involving a prophecy will know that. Um, The prophecy of Merlin indicated that a descendant of Cadwallader would rise to power and begin the slaughter of foreigners. Cadwallader was a legendary Welsh king and a leader of the Celtic resistance against the Anglo-Saxons. So Welsh myths and traditions say he was the last Welsh king to wear the crown of Britain, um, and he has been identified with King Arthur, but not no one no one actually knows if King Arthur was real. It is widely believed that he is not real, <laughs> not likely to have been a real person. More like an amalgamation of ideas about kings. Pixar and... didn't happen. Exactly. So Cadwallader is the like the, is the figure that Henry VII traces his line back to, regardless of whether that's true or not, he's basically saying, I am descended from King Arthur (laughs) and I will usher in a new age of prosperity or whatever. Chivalry. And I will unite, well, not so much chivalry, but I'll I'll unite the people after the Wars of the Roses and all this civil war. I will be the uniter of the kingdom. This is propaganda, man. It worked. Another prophecy of Merlin contains the story that the Red Dragon which symbolizes Britain, and the white dragon, which symbolizes the Saxons. So it's 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 like a it's like one of those the white the red and the white dragon will fight and the red dragon will rise victorious. Um, Merlin also predicted that in time the white dragon would eventually overcome the red dragon. And then he also foretold that six descendants of King Arthur would rule after the great king before Saxons would return and conquer Britain. Uh, the House of York and Lancaster use this symbology to support their claim to the throne by claiming descent from these mythological beginnings and the Wars of the Roses, Red versus White, as part of their stories to justify their rule. 
Henry added the red dragon associated with Cadwallader into his coat of arms to reflect this. The red dragon on the Welsh flag also comes from this story. That's actually really cool. Like, yeah, the idea like mytholo- like mythologies and myths have power and they co-opted that into their story. They yeah. were like, yeah, we can make it like very, very smart. We can make it work for us is yeah. basically what they did. And though, yeah, so, uh, and the thing is that everyone would have known these stories. Yeah. Because it, especially everyone at court, which is, you know, the world that matters to, to the king. It's the courts and the courts that surround him. So not just England, but France and Spain. Yeah. It's like they even would have known the story of Arthur because once a book is printed, like the Le de Arthur is in like all those, and even like prior to that, all those like songs and song cycles, they were about Arthur too. So he just travels. Yeah. So using that imagery is very powerful. For like for a him. modern reference, like the prince that was promised and then Stannis co-opting that, like he, yeah. he, he believed it, but like you could have a sense of like he co-opted that. He was the prince that was promised and he yeah. used that to assert himself he, yeah, and he gain said, power. I'm the prince that, he believed that he was the prince that was promised and he said that to people and, caught, caught and people ran to his cause because of it. Yeah. And it's the same sort of thing. Henry the Seventh said, "I'm descended from Cadwallader," but he sort of did it to be like, to be like, my claim to the throne is legitimate. I'm descended from Cadwallader. Yeah. Don't look at my flimsy maternal lines. Um, I'm, yeah. It's a, you know, he's sort of saying, "I'm the prince that was promised." Yeah. Well, it's also like at a time when like it was all this infighting and stuff. He was like, "Hey, I'm above all this. I'm." like from an actual ancient line, like I'm above this. I am the true kid. Like these, these people mean nothing. Like they're just fighting. But like, if you look back, I'm like from this true line, I am the true king. And he like, of course he did this after he was already king to like, so, so to, to create of, the mythology. To create, around it. To create the mythology. He's because like, I need to stop them questioning his, my line. Yeah. Well, the thing is he knew his claim was weak. The thing is that he was a better option for some people. He was a better option than Richard the third. And he and those people who came to his cause prior to him being king did so on the understanding that when he was king, he would marry Elizabeth of York, the firstborn daughter of Edward IV. So he would unite the houses of Lancaster and York, the red and the white rose, and it would give legitimacy to his own claim because the daughter of the last king was his wife and his queen. But Henry was wily. He was like, I cannot have them say that my claim to this throne rests solely on the fact that I married Elizabeth of York. So what he did was he said, I'm going to wait for us to get married and and to crown you queen. I'm going to wait a couple of months maybe till my kingship is solidified and then I'll marry you. And then because I agreed to, like I'm not going to back out of it, but like, Everyone has to know that I'm not king because you're my queen. Yeah, I'm not king because you're letting me be king. I'm king in my exactly. own right. Exactly. And then what he also did was he backdated his reign to the day before the huge battle where Richard III was king killed. So Richard III was king. They went to the Battle of Bosworth. Henry fought him. Richard lost. Henry was crowned on, was crowned on the field. He backdated his reign to the day before that battle. <laughs> So anyone who was on the other side, he was could be treason. Like, I was king and you're you're treasonous, but I'll forgive you if you pay me if you pay me money. If you give me <laughs> money, I'll forgive you. That's such like a you know what, I don't have to, but I'm going to. <laughs> so yeah, that's like and then he obviously and then he 
consciously participated in his own mythology by saying, I'm descended from Cadwallada. I I'm sort of like the new King Arthur or like my son is the new King Arthur and we will unite the land and Britain will be great again, blah, blah, blah. So that's sort of how the mythology of the time seeps into actual life and then they use it. And it's, it's sort of what William does too in his own way. He buys into his own mythology about being a knight and then he happens to make it work. He made a friend. He made a friend that could help him by by he being a knight. He was prince of England, <laughs> he and he a, made a friend by not withdrawing and pretending. He made a high powered friend for the prince. <laughs> he made a high powered friend by being nice. No, I wouldn't say no. He again, he made a friend of a prince by not withdrawing from a joust that the prince was in and potentially committing bodily harm. He him. knew he, he knew the prince wanted to compete, though. <laughs> he was like, I'd be annoyed if I kept trying to compete and everyone was like, that's the prince. You can't hit the prince. <laughs> that's treason. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it's just interesting the way that mythology sort of works in in story and then into other stories, and then into other stories, and then into real life, and then to a reproduction of a story that is based on a story that is based on a story that we can watch as a movie. Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Has so many layers I had to think about. <laughs> so we're now on to um, our philosophy, so the worldview of this movie. And uh, what I've got to say is that knights and jousting are pretty neat. Again, I will quote this because it is one of my favourite quotes of the movie. Your men love you. If I knew nothing else about you, that would be enough. But you also tilt when you should withdraw. And that is nightly to hashtag change your stars. Because Powerful. not only is that like, that, that is the point of, that is, that is the thesis statement of the movie. William only succeeds because he has friends and he knows how to win those friends, like Kate the blacksmith. She wasn't his friend at the start, but. They became friends. And then so he has this support network that help him. And it is like it, it does reflect that classic chivalric, you know, you have your like King Arthur has his knights who he trusts implicitly. Like he has the round table where they're all equal. And William, despite the fact that he is posing as a knight, is never sure and is not being equal to his friends. And it also displays that courage that you have to have as a knight. You know, you tilt when you should withdraw. Like, you, even though it's dangerous, you show courage and bravery and you go forward and you attack, even if, even if you know that, like, because there's, there's that idea, that, that chivalric idea of, like, dying in battle, you know, glory. There's that also reflected in it. And yeah, hashtag change your stars because that's the also the thesis statement of the movies. You can defy your fate, even though fate is a nebulous concept and, you know, you can't actually change stars <laughs> um, unless, you know, the star dies and implodes and become a black hole, I guess, then it changes. But, like, yeah, you can change your circumstances, better yourself, even if the odds seem entirely against you. Uh, also, this film supports the theatrical spectacle and performance, not just because it is a film and it is very lovely to watch. It is quite 
lush, I guess. The costumes are very nice and fancy. But, like, it participates in its own spectacle because it's showing you jousts and it's got Chaucer, who's emceeing, doing all these magnificent speeches that the Dutch audience don't understand so they need <laughs> problem to cue them for when they should cheer, which is a great behind-the-scenes Yeah, the scenes. I read that as well. That was good. I also read, like, into spectacle and stuff, like, all the – so they wanted – they were trying to figure out how to make the jousts safe. And in the end, they were like, oh, it looks shit. So they're like, we, we want it to be real. We're going to do real jousts. So they had like real stunt performers doing real jousts. It was super dangerous. And then they were also at one point being like, it just doesn't look good enough. I have an idea. So they started they adding spaghetti, spaghetti in the, in the yeah. lances. Yeah. They put like, yeah, uncooked uncooked spaghetti in like the lances. So that way when they broke, they'd splinter yeah. more dramatically. Like they understood like what the spectacle was they wanted and they tra- yeah. and they achieved it. They're like, it has to be a spectacle. We have to see the splinters. We have to see everything. And they, yeah, it was great. It, yeah. And it's a, it's a joyful movie to watch. Like all that effort, all that passion they put into making it so theatric and so, so marvelous, like to give you that feeling, that spirit of of the joust all of that is reflected in the actual movie itself you get it when you watch it you feel it um and that's why it's such a delightful movie um the last i suppose thing that contributes to the point of view of this movie is friendship and romance i mean we've already already done that but like william's relationships with his friends is huge they don't always agree they're not always that they worry they worry about him they fight with him but they're always there they never leave and they stand by his side until the end. Even when he's in the stocks, Kate's there with a giant stick. No, what's there with a giant stick? And Kate's got her hammer. And they're standing there, ready to protect their friend. And then there's obviously the romance with Jocelyn, which is a found like a foundational part of the story. You know, it becomes William's reason, I suppose, to compete, to be worthy of Jocelyn. Even though Jocelyn's saying, when you're not a misogynistic prick, you are worthy of me. When you're not caught up in all this glory and bullshit, you are worthy of me. What is the quote? Uh, better a silly girl than a with silly, a rose. with a rose than a silly boy, silly with, boy a with a and horse stick. and a stick. Yeah, yeah, she has a point. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. It, she's she's cautioning against against his own ego. She's saying, you know, you take this too far sometimes because he's trying to he's trying to prove himself, obviously, but like. She's saying, you don't need to prove yourself to me. I like you just the way you are. Yeah, he, he becomes the best. And then he's like, but Adam, I, I, I'm not the best. I haven't beaten this one guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Adam was not here, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Beat Adam up. Oh, and then, of course, he does beat Adam up. And he, and he says, welcome to the new world where a peasant can beat you. Ha, ha, ha. Fuck you, Adam. Yeah. And also, I noticed it when you were talking about it before, like it kind of like the tale of the tale it's based on like Adamar is off his horse on the ground yeah and that's kind of like the original tale that mm-hmm. the knight's tale is based on <laughs> falls yeah. off the horse and the other one is victory wins the woman yeah the story of a story of a story to a movie <laughs> lots of there's so many threads in this movie to follow like i said there's just so that's why the completion is like so strange because like there isn't that much within, like, there's so much within the movie, but it relates to everything that's outside the movie. It's not within the world of the movie itself. It's in here. It's here where we are. But, yeah, it, that's why it's such a, it's so enjoyable to research this movie because there's so much to look into. So if you're interested by anything we've talked about and you don't think I've talked about it enough, 
I can't imagine how you could possibly think that after having listened to this podcast. But if you feel that way, you know, go research. There's so much out there. Um, and, you know, some of it's even interesting. All right. Some. So now some. Not everything's interesting. All right. So we're down to my recommendations for this week. So obviously A Knight's Tale is available on Netflix Australia. Um, if you've gotten this far and you're still like, huh, should I watch that movie? I don't know what you're doing. Why are you here? But also, like, I love you. Welcome. But, like, how did you get this far? And now you've decided that you should watch Night's Tale. <laughs> um, Cursed is also available on Netflix Australia. It's on it, my watch list. I've, I've been finished for it to come it out today. And now it's out. Oh. Yeah, I finished it Fancy. today. Uh, it, it is based on the Arthurian myth. It partakes in that particular canon. And it's very interesting. And it's very pretty to watch. It is just the landscapes are so lush. And, you know, reasonably high on the diversity scale as well, which is nice for, for new content that comes out on Netflix because you would hope that <laughs> Netflix as a platform can show that. Yeah, fair. I have a question for you because I know you're a big fan. You're a big fan of Merlin. Better or worse than Merlin? Well, I'm not a big fan. I, I do enjoy Merlin because it's very <laughs> easy to watch. Um, it doesn't require any brain power. Um, I would say Cursed is more interesting than Merlin I would say because one it focuses on Nimue who is not an oft focused on character and she's very interesting in the Arthurian myth so she's the lady of the lake usually cast as lady of the lake there's usually a couple of characters she's who sort of swap in and out but she's the main the sword one at him. <laughs> yeah she's a watery tart distributing <laughs> swords Monty Python reference there love it yeah um, and it's uh, and it's got um, Gustav Gustav Skazgard, so Loki from Lo- the Vikings. You mean Berlin. Loki? Loki, sorry. Yeah, it's been a while since I watched Loki. But yeah, he's Loki, also in Westworld, but not his claim. Viking, claim. who who plays Merlin in it, he's a very good Merlin. Um, Arthur is is a person of color. His sister Morgana is a person of color and a lesbian. Like it's just. It's got a lot more, it's like, it's not, it's MA, so it's not for kids. And I sort of like that. And like, it's done, it's like produced by Frank Miller based on one of his like graphic novels Ooh, or something. I so, you Frank know, it's like a little bit, it's like, it's a little bit gory. It's a little bit dark. It's got Daniel Sharman in it too. Like, it's just got an amazing cast. Daniel Sharman as in Isaac from Teen Wolf yeah, and yeah. Uh, the guy from Medici. What a what a long way he's come. Um, it's just a it's 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 a very good TV show. And yeah, if you're not sold on anything that I've already said, just remember it's I don't know where it's set. It's either Canada or New Zealand. It has to be because it's so green and lush. So the landscapes are just oh, they're Tolkien worthy. Um, so yeah, would recommend. Uh, my other recommend my other two recommendations. Well, three, four. Anyway, uh, so there's The Lady of the Rivers by Philippa Gregory. If you're interested by anything I said about Jaquetta, it's a really good historical fiction novel that deals with her familial connection to the water goddess Melusina. Um, And it's also just interesting. If you don't want historical fiction, you want actual history, uh, Royal Witches by Gemma Holman is about those women who are those, like, you know, middle aristocracy women so like you know Eleanor Cobham 
Jaquetta, Elizabeth Woodville, the women, Joan of Navarre, the women who are accused of being witches by men who wanted to either bring down their husbands or somehow uh, decrease a high, a high, a high status woman's own political power by accusing them of witchcraft. So it's all about the royal women who are accused of being witches and like whether or not they survived, how they navigated trials, things like that. It's very interesting. Uh, my last two recommendations are Winter King by Thomas Penn, which is about Henry VII, which is how I know all about Cadwallader because I'm reading it at the moment. And then Brothers York, also by Thomas Penn, which is all about the uh, Edward IV and his two brothers, so George, Duke of Clarence, and then Richard, Duke of York, who becomes Richard III, which is they're both pure history books, but they're really easy to read. Like, I mean, sometimes, like in any sort of history thing, sometimes they're a little bit slow, but like on the whole, very easy to read, very interesting. And if you want like a good insight into all the stresses that lead to the Wars of the Roses, Brothers York is a really good place to start. Sweet. And with that, I think we've come to the end. We have. Thank we you made it. for thank listening, uh, listeners. And uh, thank you for preparing and researching. Yeah, thanks, thank thanks for listening, everyone. Um, if you want to leave us a cheeky little note maybe or a rating, that would, that would be very nice of you. But, yeah, just glad, just glad to have you here. Right. Um, subscribe. We don't really subscribe. Oh, subscribe. Yeah, you could subscribe to podcasts. I should know this. Uh, rate, yeah, subscribe. subscribe. Rate, review, subscribe. Um, no promises, but if you're like, I really love this world, I would like you to cover this world, you can go to our Facebook page or you can shoot us an email. Yeah, absolutely. Let us know what you want us to cover and I'll put it on the list. Yeah, I mean, and we'll get to it. We'll eventually. evaluate it and then we'll put it on the list. If it's something like, I don't know, the world of Tracy McBean or something, we might be like, no. We, we might be like, oh. and, uh, yeah. I don't know enough about that. <laughs> but yeah, or if it's like, if it's something, if you say like, I want you to do all of Tolkien, the answer is no. But we might look at like a little bit of Tolkien. We might like, you know, like look at the first chapter of the Silmarillion. <laughs> the, the only, just the first one. The, the only the uh, well, furthest well, I've made yeah, it in. We might look at, we, we just might look at like a small part. Like for instance, we do have a plan to do Star Wars. We're going to start with just the Jedi. We're not going to do anything else. We're just going to talk about the Jedi. So, like, you know, if you have a, if you're particularly interested in Star Wars, but not the Jedi, and you want to talk about, I don't know, Mandalorians instead, let us know. We'll add it to the list. Yeah. Personally, I'm waiting for when we uh, examine the Gungans in Star Wars. So that's that's my that's gonna be my. <laughs> it's very far down the list, but we'll get there, ladies and gentlemen. We'll get there. Yeah. When I'm out of everything else, that's when we're coming. Uh, until then. Uh, Thank you for listening and thank you for hosting and yeah, take care and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Hopefully not in isolation, but we'll see. All right. Bye. Bye. This has been a Spiky Trap Radio production. For more Spiky Trap Radio content, please head to spikytrap.com.